0: And just like that, here we are, part two of our new series, Blueprint. Huh? Just like that. The title of part two of Blueprint is Dogmatic. Not like an automatic dog, dogmatic. D-O-G-M-A-T-I-C, dogmatic. Being dogmatic refers to expressing opinion as fact. And it is certainly a word with a fairly strong negative connotation. Theologically, the term dogma, the root word, refers to a specially ordained doctrine. Unbelievers commonly accuse believers of being dogmatic. Believers, indeed, would not typically use the word dogmatic to refer to themselves or their church, but might use the term dogmatics to refer to their church principles. Now, a much more interesting linguistic landmine, if you will, is the word faith. 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 The word faith may be the only word, I'm interested in hearing from you after the sermon, it may be the only word for which an actual definition is offered in scripture. Like a scholarly definition. Uh, I don't know of any other word that is defined in scripture. At least not like the, word, the way the word faith is by the Apostle Paul. We'll look at the definition in just a moment. Despite the fact that the word is defined in the Bible, it is absolutely true that fundamental theological disputes over the meaning of this word have emerged. Rather heated disputes. Now, of course, this is some, something of a concern. It is even more of a particular concern because it is this word that has made we followers of Christ Now I don't want to get all negative here but um, the way I have it written here is it is this word, faith that has made we followers of Christ slow moving targets to secular accusations of dogmatism for modern non-believers, if you can kind of get into their head for a moment there is little or no difference between the transgression of expressing opinion as fact and the transgression of expressing faith as fact So Paul, back to Paul, the letter to the Hebrews, chapter 11, Paul defines faith, reading from the NIV, now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. Okay, now, if you were to do a search, like a web search, whatever, we're all very accustomed to that ritual, uh, for something like a biblical definition of faith, that's what you're going to find, or uh, there's lots of different adaptations. There's like call spiritual definition. It's very similar. Talk about confidence and about the unseen. Now, the first thing we're going to notice just right at the beginning of chapter 11, this is the letter to, to the Hebrews by Paul, uh, the epistle, um, is that there is no mention of the subject of this faith. Interestingly. Very interestingly. Now, if we keep reading... We find that Paul says, "This is what the ancients were commended, commended for." Okay, so that's interesting. Like, wait a second, ancients? What ancients? What commendation? Okay, well, uh, Paul keeps us in suspense for another sentence or two. Uh, verse three: By faith, by faith. This is a continuation of a thought. By faith, we understand. We understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. It's kind of a fascinating testimony. Interesting choice of words as well. Now, after that, speaking of the subject of our faith, Paul offers several examples. Now, I'm not going to read through all of them here. uh, But one of the ancients Paul cites is Noah. Noah. And uh, this actually reminded me a little. I don't know if you remember this. This is I've lost track of time. This was um, a sermon that Mike Greenholt gave on Noah. Remember that? Really, very interesting. He's got a knack for that. It'd be nice to hear some more sermons from him. But um, very true. And this is something that uh, that Michael Michael Greenholt fo- focused on when he gave his sermon about Noah. Noah did not complain. Didn't question God, right? very low-friction type of operation. He didn't unionize. Not that there's anything wrong with unions, okay? I know this is a 501 here, so I don't want to get too political. Okay, so, for one thing now, very importantly, we now have a qualified sense of the object of Christian faith, according to Paul, anyway. There are two equally important and essential insights here, and I think that they're very, very simple and completely unambiguous, Okay? The first one is obvious, and that is that Paul writes this after his conversion, where he was knocked to the ground on the road to Damascus, obviously. Okay? Probably about 20 years after, something like that. Less obvious, but maybe even more important, is the fact that Paul writes this in Hebrews chapter 11, which is what we were just looking at, after his letter to the Galatians, where he writes... Chapter 1, verse 11. Galatians, the letter to the Galatians. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel I preached is not of human origin. Verse 12. Yeah, this is Galatians chapter 1, verse 12. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation. Revelation from Jesus Christ. Cannot stress how important that is. Of course... Jesus, during his ministry, refers to faith in a few different contexts. Now, in Damon's current study of the book of Mark, we just got done looking at the withered fig tree, right? Well, right after that, when they're passing by it again, and and Peter says, hey, there's that fig tree you cursed, and it's all withered and messed up. And a very simple response from Jesus is chapter 11, book of Mark, verse 22. Have faith in God. And, of course, during Jesus' ministry, he refers to the faith of others in a very impactful way. Because oftentimes, this is uh, right uh, associated with encounters involving miracles and healing. So, for example, in Matthew chapter 15, the Canaanite woman. Uh, this a- a is actually very similar, by the way, to Mark chapter 7. We're going to read the uh, what essentially is the entirety of the encounter here. Okay. Matthew 15, the Canaanite woman, we're starting at near verse 21. Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon. A Canaanite woman from that vicinity came to him, crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is demon-possessed and suffering terribly. Jesus did not answer a word. So his disciples came to him and urged him, Send her away, for she keeps crying out after us. He, Jesus, answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. So the woman came to him and knelt before him. Lord, help me, she said. He, Jesus, replied, It is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. And what's her response? Yes, it is, Lord. She said, even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus said to her, woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. And her daughter was healed at that moment. Another absolutely fascinating exchange. Okay, now, at this point, and there's a lot to be said on this, but I promised you that uh, we would keep things just tight and concise here. This is way more than we can cover when you start talking and getting into the subject of biblical faith. But there's a conclusion, basically a conjecture, that I want to offer, and I think it's both at the same time potentially obvious and also potentially alarming. And I'm not sure, but I'm interested in your opinion. Biblical faith, from what we can tell, from Paul, from Jesus, of itself has nothing to do with establishing belief in God. Biblical faith itself, one more time, has nothing to do with establishing belief in God. I originally written this in a much more dramatic way, but it wasn't accurate. I think that this is accurate. It gets across what we're trying to focus on here. I originally said something like, biblical faith has nothing to do with belief in God, which is kind of partly true and par- partly not, but that sounds almost heretical. But the point is similar, similar. Rather, rather, biblical faith always presupposes knowledge of God. Always. Of course, Jesus did not say, these are pretty obvious examples, in Mark chapter 11, he did not say, have faith that God exists. Okay? After the fig tree, have faith that God exists. He said, have faith in God Consider this, okay? I think this is much more convincing. If we think of faith, like right when Paul opens up chapter 11 of Hebrews, is what appears to be his original definition, confidence in what is unseen, unqualified. If we think of faith, faith, without the presupposition of God, I'll tell you that the most faithful people I have ever met in my life are atheists. OK? If that's the definition we want, if we're getting rid of the fundamental presupposition of the existence of God, atheists reject God. Think about it. And yet, every morning, they crawl out of bed, comb their hair, brush their teeth, shuffle off to work, spend time with their family. That is faith, OK? Hands down winners of all time, those atheists. But of course, of course, we imagine or we know that such a person would never ever make a list of examples of faithfulness that the Apostle Paul might cite, obviously. Obviously. Biblical faith always presupposes knowledge of God. Paul's definition of faith, similar to God's acknowledgement of faith of the Canaanite woman, concerns the mutual desire of us, us, the created, and God, the creator, that his invisible will is in harmony with our needs. Faith, as Paul said in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 3, includes, additionally, our acknowledgement of God's awesome creative power. Biblical faith is about God's character. It is absolutely pointless to consider the character of a God that does not exist, obviously. Okay, Uh, there's two more parts. They're much shorter, so we're better than halfway done. The autostereogram. Autostereogram. But you know what that is, autostereogram? Have you ever heard of an Autostereogram. It's it's all one word, autostereogram. Okay, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with these. I need this for a metaphor. I'll try to, I'll describe it to you just sort of superficially. Autostereogram. An autostereogram, you can find these online. It's an image. Um, and it's oftentimes an image that just looks like a big splatter of colors and shapes. It's unintelligible, okay? Like a mess, just a mess. Like a, what's his name, Pollock painting or something? Just like a splatter of colors or something. Now, the way it works is that if you focus your eyes, if you're looking at it, and you focus your eyes just in the right way, that 2D image, the autostereogram, will magically stretch out and form a three-dimensional image. At least that's the illusion it presents. And it's very, very realistic. Often, depending on the actual picture you're looking at, in this process of stretching from 2D to 3D, certain features within the image, previously hidden and undetectable, pop out and reveal themselves. All of a sudden, pop out and you see them. There's an example, I mean, there's hundreds of examples. There's a pretty famous example of just a big smattering of colors and weird little shapes, and then when you do it just right, it turns into a castle with knights. You never see them, unless you got your eyes just correctly out of focus tell you a little bit more about the autostereogram and why we're talking about this. So, Now, in terms of focus, when I say if you get your focus just right, there's two types, two types of autostereograms. There's what they call near focus, cross-eyed, aka cross-eyed, and then there's also far focus, which is they also call wall-eyed, wall-eyed. Now, if you want to try this at home, you can find hundreds of examples online, like I mentioned a moment ago. I suggest you start with near... If you've never done this before, do the cross-eyed ones the near-focused ones. They're much easier. Okay, so what's the deal? Why, how do we end up with stereo? We went from dogmatic to faith to autostereograms. Okay, some autostereograms are very, very difficult, especially the wall-eyed ones, the far-focused ones. They're really difficult. So much so... So much so that some people are simply unable to see the otherwise invisible figures that are hidden within. They're just unable to do it. They just can't do it. Some people can't do it. But now, the fact that a person cannot see these otherwise invisible figures does not change the fact that those figures are there. They're still there. A person could get very frustrated. I've actually seen this happen. Trying without success to get that image to pop out in three dimensions that they accuse a person who can see these figures of simply imagining that they're there. You're just making that up. That accusation does not change the fact that the figures are there. No matter what this person says or does, does not alter the presence of these otherwise hidden figures. They are simply already there. They are there. Now, I do like this metaphor we're going to try one more. I do like this metaphor, and we're almost done. Uh, but I do recognize that it maybe I don't know if this has crossed your mind, or maybe Damon's mind, uh, that it smacks a little agnosticism. But uh, so we'll try something else here. <coughs> so, if you would please indulge me, uh, you can do this just in your imagination. Okay? Uh, do you remember like playtime in your preschool? Remember playtime? You just use imagination, like magic. Like they give you like a little scene, and you imagine it in your head. Something like that. So imagine a cartoon strip in your imagination. Kind of doesn't matter, but just try to imagine that it's real. Like you're looking at a real cartoon strip. Of course, a cartoon strip is a sequence of cells, okay, or blocks. Sometimes I think they use that term. In each cell, now in this particular cartoon strip, uh, we find two characters. Now. In your imagination, you are absolutely welcome to fashion the artistic styling of this imagined cartoon strip however you like. That could be in the manner of Matt Groening, Gary Trudeau, Mike Judge, Gilbert Shelton, Dwayne McDuffie, Marjane Satrapi. And if you're really, really long in years, I don't think there's anybody here old enough to, to know this last one. But God bless you if you are, if you're listening on the podcast. James Thurber, one of my favorites doesn't matter. So the styling doesn't matter. Okay. So we've got cartoon strip. We've got a sequence of cells, two characters, same two characters in each cell. Okay. So in this cartoon, the two characters are arguing with each other. They are arguing about whether or not they were created. So one character says, well, of course we've been created. And the other one says, that's ridiculous. There's no evidence for that. The first character says, well, we obviously didn't just draw ourselves, did we? And then the other one says, oh, our outlines just occurred by chance. And so on, and so on, and so on, and they just keep arguing. Uh, I would ask that you not suspend your disbelief too much here, because we've got to keep, keep ourselves sort of, uh, in, in reality, one foot on the curb and one foot in the gutter, so to say. For, so first, okay, in this metaphor, in this little imaginary exercise, obviously, the first character is correct, Right? Somebody drew the cartoon. Okay, That's easy. Less obvious, I think equally interesting, at least as far as this metaphor goes, is that not only did the artist render them, meaning that the first character was correct, but also the artist ordained the character's appearance, actions, and speech. God's written revelation interestingly, interestingly, just to try to really drive the point home. You know this? God's scripture, Bible, never mentions blind faith. Not that I know of. You could maybe prove me wrong. This is a completely new cons- construct, the idea of blind faith. It shouldn't be that big of a surprise, especially when we sort of reflect back to the Church and Science series. Its existence, the idea of blind faith, has been catalyzed through the modern distortion of biblical faith. Faith comes from God. It is not an opinion concerning God's existence. It always presupposes God's existence. Faith is not dogmatic. And that's it. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, once again, I'll get an A for creativity here. I'm just so very, very grateful for our fellowship here. This is, I think, about the fourth or fifth time you've heard this. We're all very grateful for fellowship here in Church on Melrose. Your faithfulness, the building, the health, the continuous health that you have provided. Our fellow fellowshippers, our pastor, Gia, um, Dan and Lonnie, we're very grateful for the beautiful weather that you provided the extravagant creation that you provided the opportunities that you provided the luxury of things to sate our wants and needs the luxury or the, we'll say opulence the luxury that you have provided us As we leave this place, Father, walk with us, guide us, guide our thoughts. Be in our minds, our hearts, our souls, guide our speech, our thoughts, guide us, direct us. We pray in the name of your sacrifice at Calvary some 2,000 years ago, your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.